0: This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jem Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program Issues in Perspective. As you might imagine, the very first perspective I want to think with you about is the death of Osama bin Laden. As we are taping this, the President of the United States has announced that Navy SEALs had killed Osama bin Laden, the head of Al-Qaeda. Several days later, continued investigations, uh, debriefing of the Navy SEALs have added other information about the raid. But fundamentally, it was an incredible and courageous act on the small group of Navy SEALs to get perhaps one of the most wanted men in human history, certainly in the 21st century. It'll take some time before we know the ramifications of this momentous event, but permit me a few preliminary observations. Number one, the death of bin Laden ends an era in Islamic terrorism. Terrorism before bin Laden was often state-sponsored terrorism. One thinks of Libya, for example, or Iraq. But bin Laden was a terrorist who sponsored a state. Afghanistan. For five years, from 1996 to 2001, he paid for the protection of the Taliban in Afghanistan. This bought him time. It bought him freedom to make al-Qaeda, which means the base, a multinational enterprise to export terror around the world. In doing so, he He waged his terrorist war using modern technology and methodology. His fatwas were emailed around the world, for example. In the 1980s, his involvement in fighting against the Soviets after they had invaded Afghanistan changed his life and his worldview. Bin Laden saw the retreat of the Soviets from Afghanistan in 1989 as an affirmation of Islamic political power, which used jihad to topple superpowers. This caused him to then turn on the United States. He declared, quote, I am confident that Muslims will be able to end the legend of the so-called superpower that is America, close that quote. He built his own legend, modeling himself after the Prophet Muhammad, who in the 7th century led the Muslim people to rout the infidels, or non-believers, from North Africa and the Middle East. As the Quran had been revealed to Muhammad amid intense persecution, Bin Laden saw his own expulsions during the 1990s from Saudi Arabia and then from Sudan as an affirmation of himself as a chosen one. In his vision, Bin Laden would be the emir or prince in the restoration of Khalifa, the caliphate, a political empire extending from Afghanistan across the globe. Al Qaeda was the infrastructure of his dream. Through the 1990s, it evolved into a far-flung and loosely connected network of symbiotic relationships. Bin Laden gave affiliated terrorist groups money, training, and expertise. They gave him operational cover and furthering of his cause. This leads me to a second comment, and it's really a question. Does this mean the end of Al Qaeda? Does the death of Osama Bin Laden mean the death of Al Qaeda, the organization he formed? Eric Schmidt, who wrote a very helpful article about this question, writes, His death will not end the threat from an increasingly potent and self-reliant string of regional al-Qaeda affiliates in North Africa and Yemen or even self-radicalized vanguards in various parts of the world. President, former President George Bush has argued, quote, His death deprives al-Qaeda of its core leader and the ideological cohesion that bin Laden maintained. But the al-Qaeda that bin Laden created in the 1980s is much different in its organization than the one he created and the one that he presided over when 9-11 occurred. Today, it's much less hierarchical, much more diffuse. But this appeared to be the plan of bin Laden from the very start when he formed al-Qaeda, a group of terrorist subsidiaries that could request ideological guidance or material support, but were largely self-sustaining. In short, it is difficult to believe that al-Qaeda will not remain a formidable terrorist threat, at least in the near future. Number three, that bin Laden's luxurious compound was in Pakistan is revealing. In fact, His compound was not that far from Pakistan's capital Islamabad and very near a facility closely linked to the Pakistani military. As I understand it, less than a mile away was the equivalent of their West Point in this area of Pakistan. It defies credulity to believe that the Pakistani military was not aware of Osama bin Laden's presence. Fourthly, The reaction to his death across the Arab and Muslim world was predictable. But most telling to me was the reaction of Hamas. The top leader of Hamas in Gaza, Mourn bin Laden, is, quote, an Arab holy warrior. We condemn the assassination and the killing of an Arab holy warrior. We offer God and ask him to offer mercy to him and with other true believers and other martyrs of our faith. Close that quote. This is the movement with which Israel is supposed to negotiate. This is the movement that Abbas of Fatah is supposed to accept as a partner for peace. That Hamas so clearly and categorically called him a holy warrior of Islam is indicative of the the group of people, I'm not even going to call them a nation because they're not a nation, which with Israel is supposed to negotiate. That, to me, makes no sense. We see the true heart of this movement. And as I am taping this, I just heard a news report that Hamas continues, even though it has signed a tentative agreement with the other Palestinian organization, Fatah, to rule, they refuse to recognize the state of Israel. One final comment about Osama bin Laden's death. As a Christian, I believe it is appropriate to see bin Laden's death as justice. The fundamental principle of justice articulated in Scripture is what we call talionic justice, the law of retribution. The principle of justice holds people accountable for their actions. What Osama bin Laden ordered and funded on 9-11 was a dastardly act of mass murder. He is accountable for that barbaric act. Hence, whatever else may be said about his death, it was justice. And finally, as a Christian, I believe that I can declare, and this might sound provocative, but let me say it nonetheless, that the moment Osama bin Laden died, he knew that everything he had believed, everything he had lived for, was a lie. He now knows that Islam is not true. He had believed that his murderous life, constructing his horrific vision, for an ideal that was not true. He now knows that his life, if I can put it this way, was an utter waste. What a tragedy. What in the world will Osama bin Laden say when he stands before Almighty God at the great white throne judgment? It will be too late for God's grace. It will be too late for God's mercy. He has made his decision of what to do about Jesus Christ, and he became one of the most violent men in modern history. We can no longer say, may God have mercy, on Osama bin Laden. That has already been decided, and he made that decision when he rejected the revelation concerning Jesus Christ. What a tragedy, what a sad commentary on what can happen to an individual. and absolutely enraptured by that which is not true. Osama bin Laden will be one of the great tragic figures of history. That leads me then to perhaps another connected point, and it's sort of a Middle East update, but it comes from a very dear friend of mine. He lives in Jerusalem, and his name is Ronnie Simone. He's a retired lieutenant colonel in the Israeli Defense Force who serves as my guide When I lead my annual tours of Israel, he recently sent me a detailed email on his perspective about what is occurring in the Middle East today. He is a published author, and his valuable insights are something I'd like to share with you. So I'm sharing it in this perspective, an edited version of some of his comments. Again, these are the thoughts and comments largely of my good friend who lives in Jerusalem. The Middle East is experiencing unrest and turmoil like never before. The last wave of unrest unrest in the Arab world had taken place during the 1950s and 1960s, a wave of revolutions initiated normally at that time by Arab uh, army personnel, and they led coups that overthrew very corrupt regimes. The new regimes in Egypt and Syria that emerged during that period were more about Arab nationalism than about Islam. In both cases, the corruption of the old regime in Egypt and Syria in the 1950s and 60s was the reason for the coup. Both sought to restore Arab national pride, which was affected by the creation of Israel and the defeat in that subsequent 1948 war. Anti-Israeli sentiments played a major role in the new regime's agenda. Hatred of Israel was a common thread of these movements. From a strictly Israeli standpoint, and this is my friend writing, we are watching carefully the dynamic in our two closest geographical neighbors, Egypt and Syria. A comment about Egypt, followed by a comment about Syria. First, Egypt. In Egypt, the military has seized power, driving Mubarak, of course, into exile, seemingly only for a while until a new constitution is formed. Then it is promised... The army will declare free elections and pass power peacefully to an elected government. In Egypt, the military is highly respected by the people. And the fact that the army did not fire on demonstrators during the freedom uprising that toppled Mubarak was in their favor. But the tone of the Egyptian street is very anti-Israel. Every potential candidate for president tries to score points by bashing Israel at every opportunity. The logic behind these tones is simple. Since the former ruler was a dictator, he did not represent the will of the people. Therefore, the peace treaty with Israel contradicts the will of the Egyptian people and should be canceled. The Israeli-Egyptian peace treaty is indeed in danger. The situation in Egypt also affects the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. With the unrest in Egypt, the authorities have no will or energy to patrol and watch what happens in the Sinai. Through the Sinai, we already know this, now it is flowing, weapons are going into the Gaza Strip. And without Egyptian presence in the area, access to Gaza is much easier. The joint effort that both Israel and Egypt had invested in stopping the arms smuggling was bearing fruit, but no longer. In addition, the pipeline that carries gas from Egypt to Israel has been sabotaged several times over the last months, most recently last week. Meanwhile, demonstrators outside the Israeli embassy in Cairo are calling for death to Israel. The most disturbing issue, however, in Egypt is the growing involvement of the Muslim Brotherhood. At first, the Brotherhood kept a very low profile did not want to take the front line, knowing that unrest based on its Muslim radical demands would not be supported by other demonstrators. The revolution had its popularity because it was representing the Egyptian nation as a whole, not only serving the Muslim Brotherhood's agenda. However, now with increased confusion and unrest, the Brotherhood is gaining more power. With no organized opposition, the winner in the upcoming election— will not necessarily be someone who represents the majority of the people, but one who is better organized. And the Muslim Brotherhood is well-organized, well-prepared, and well-motivated. They may not represent the majority of the Egyptian people, but as for now, they're the only group ready to govern the country. Their Brotherhood speaks about the bond between Egypt and Hamas and Gaza, and about Egypt's commitment to side with Hamas if there's ever a war with Israel. From the Israeli point of view, the Muslim Brotherhood in power would be a worst-case scenario. Would the Egyptian people support the Muslim Brotherhood? Ronnie asks. Among Egyptian liberals and intellectuals, the hatred of Israel is growing. Many circles of the Egyptian society are united around their hatred of Israel more than around any other cause. In an odd way. The military domination of Egypt, as long as it is controlled by the present military hierarchy, will guarantee, at least for the short time, the Israeli-Egyptian peace. But for the long term, in terms of Israel, the Egyptian rise of Muslim brotherhood to power is the greatest fear that Israel has about Egypt. What about Syria? Ronnie writes that the situation in Syria is much different. The Syrian administration is based on a small group in Syrian society, the Alawite tribe. This group now rules Syria with an iron fist. The Assad family, who are are Alawites, came to power through revolution in the 1960s. The Alawites only make about 12% of the population of Syria, although they hold all the important governmental positions in the nation. The Assad regime, first Hafez al-Assad, and now his son Bashar al-Assad, because they are a small minority, can only rule with brutal force, which we are now seeing in Syria. Therefore, the unrest in Syria has in its elements do not resemble Egypt at all. For example, there are several groups that cannot be ignored in Syria. The Kurds, the Druze. Opposing segments of the Muslim faith, primarily Sunni, all add to the confusion in Syria. And each of these groups is further divided into clans and tribes that are also in constant conflict with each other. In contrast, Egypt is a much more homogenous society. It's one nation and primarily one Arab ethnic group. How has Syria dealt with its diversity? Well, in 1982, in the Syrian city of Hama, the Syrian army butchered some 20,000 of its citizens that dared to demonstrate against the regime. That event is still vivid in the minds of Syrians. Chaos in Syria also means the deeper involvement of Iran. Iran has a lot to lose from a regime change in Syria. Chaos in Syria also means more weapons flowing into Lebanon for Hezbollah. Therefore, Iran will do whatever needs to be done to maintain Assad in power. So from an Israeli standpoint, Ronnie writes, stability in Syria under the present regime seems to be the preferred situation. Here is his conclusion. The voices that are coming from Egypt carry the same message. The hatred of Israel overpowers everything else. The West refuses to understand how deep This hatred of Israel really is. Changes in the Arab world may lead to regime change, but will not decrease the deep hatred of Islam towards the West and toward Israel. It looks like the end of Arab nationalism. That era is now over. The main question is what will replace these nationalist regimes? A more radical Muslim caliphate or a true democracy? Obviously, Only time will answer that question. As Ronnie has written and as I've edited and summarized and either directly quoted or paraphrased his comments, what we are seeing in the Middle East is the end of these intensely nationalist regimes. What is going to replace them? Is it going to be a radical Muslim, even Al-Qaeda-type radical Islamic-type governmental uh, system or coalition of these groups. I don't know. There is some real danger that this could occur, especially if the Muslim Brotherhood is able to get a number of the seats in the parliament and get control of the Egyptian government. That would not be good for Israel. So we are facing a time of incredible and remarkable, seemingly right now, chaotic change And no one, at least no one I'm reading, has any clue how this is all going to shake out. We are in a very volatile time in the history of the Middle East. And that means a very volatile time for the future of Israel. In our final perspective on the program today, I want to leave the Middle East and leave the end of Osama bin Laden and think with you about Mother's Day. The Bible has a great deal to say about mothers, as you know, and there is no question that the Bible elevates mothers as a part of the family structure, dear to the heart of God. One thinks of Jesus' mother, one thinks of the mothers of the various prophets, as well as the various widows that were throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, that have a special place in the heart of God. The United States of America is one of the few countries on planet Earth which sets aside a very special day in the year to honor mothers. Of course, this weekend, May the 8th, is when the United States celebrates Mother's Day. I read a recent article which summarizes the changing face of motherhood in the United States, and I'd like to share a few of those findings in this final perspective. There are five or six key thoughts that indicate how significantly motherhood is changing in our nation. For example, in 2008, 82% of women between the ages 40 to 44, had given birth. In 1976, that figure was 90%. In 2010, secondly, the number of single mothers living with children younger than age 18 is today 9.9 million. In 1970, that figure was 3.4 million. Perhaps no other statistic shows the significant change going on in motherhood, than that number of single mothers. Thirdly, in 2007, the number of custodial mothers who were due child support was 5.6 million. In four, number 4, of the 4 million women 15 to 44 years of age who had a birth in the last year, 1.5 million, about 38%, were to women who were not married, separated or married but with an absent spouse. Of those 1.4 million mothers, 424,500 were living in a, with a cohabiting partner, the cohabiting relationship. In 2008, there were 32.6 twin births per 1,000 births in our country, the highest rate on record. And finally, women with graduate or professional degrees, have a higher fertility rate than any other level of education among women, which I find a very interesting statistic. So as we celebrate this very special holiday, Mother's Day, this weekend in the United States, there is no question that the nature of the American mother is changing. And the effect these changes will have on children is not really known. It is doubtful, at least in my judgment, it is doubtful that all of these statistics that I just summarized mean something positive for children. In fact, over time, these effects will probably be more negative than positive. The nature of motherhood is changing, and these statistics summarize the extent of that change. One of the key factors you see in the Bible, in the creation ordinance of God in Genesis 2, in the narratives of the Old Testament, and then in the teaching sections of the New Testament, is that a stable family—mother, father, and children—is the most healthy dimension of a social arrangement for children. That is how God designed the family. And therefore, when you have a significant and growing number of single mothers where there is no father— or even where you have cohabiting relationships, which by their very nature can be temporary and children come along, that is not necessarily a stable, In most likely it will be a volatile relationship. And its effect on children will not be positive over time. So with the changing nature of motherhood, and with the rise, as we've summarized a couple of times, of single mothers, and with all the other relationships socially that are developing, One of the things we're going to see is the growing dysfunction when it comes to children. These statistics do not bode well for children of the future. And it gets back to a simple proposition. God created us, created us as in his image bearers, and created an institution that is the family. And as the family goes, so goes a nation. That's an old saying, but it's one filled with profound truth. So one cannot necessarily be overwhelmingly pessimistic, but it's also true one cannot be overwhelmingly optimistic. We live in very unsettling times, and there's perhaps no greater indicator of that than the changing nature of the family, and specifically the changing nature of motherhood.